Hi, fellow geochemists and geochemistry enthusiasts. Welcome to Geochemist Tea, the only podcast for people who love geochemistry with a side of tea. Our mission is to inspire and to shed light on topics not fancy enough to talk about at a conference, but important to delve into. I'm your host, Sam Scher, and this week we are talking with Brenton Crawford about fusing core imagery and chemistry to model stratigraphy, a blog by Ryan Dutch on the DataRock website. Brenton Crawford is the Chief Operating Officer at DataRock, and while not a geochemist, Brenton and his partners at DataRock are pioneering industry-scale image analysis and integrating it with geochemical data. Brenton, welcome to Geochemistry. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Brenton, like one of our first guests, Tom Carmichael, who is also your business partner, your path is not necessarily as important for our young listeners to hear about, since at one point you were a geophysicist. But... I think focusing more on your role as a geologist and a data scientist, as well as your journey through data science and image analysis in the geosciences as an evolving field is something that they could benefit from. So do you have any tips or advice to give our listeners wanting to break into data science? Yeah, I think I could probably, the best advice I could probably give is to talk about what we look for when we're hiring data scientists within a consulting group. So I think we probably got it wrong in, in the early days where we valued the coding side more than we valued the geoscience side, and that's certainly something that we you know, feel very strongly about now. It's much more important to find to hire someone who's a very good scientist, someone that has a, an analytical brain, methodical kind of thought process, and obviously some sort of background in, in the things that you need to use the tools of data science, like mathematics or statistics. And the coding part can generally be pretty well taught and added to later. So I think I wouldn't overcomplicate it too much in the sense that you need to be a great scientist first and foremost. That's super important. I think when you're studying and post-study, you take an interest in coding. They're probably the key things, I'd say. I think that certain disciplines have a bit of a leg up sometimes when it comes to that. I can certainly say that, and I'll probably talk about later, that geophysicists tended to be our first early hires because they were closer to the coding side of things just naturally. But as time's gone on, I think students and the teaching is all evolving we're finding it a lot easier now to find much more diverse set of geoscientists who can write code. Yourself, Sam, you've been learning to code and have been increasing your skills year on year. So I think the industry as a whole is becoming more familiar with how to use a lot of those kind of more high-end data science tools. I think I've gone right around in a circle. But overall, what do you need to be a good data scientist? Well, you need to be a good scientist is probably the, my overarching statement and the rest you can learn. Yeah, I think you pretty much covered it because my first question, since you forgot it, I mean, it was bundled up in, in a longer sentence, so I can realize that might have been a little bit difficult for you, but it was just any tips or advice to give our listeners that wanted to break into data scientists. So you talked a bit about different coursework. I think a lot of people that come up to me are concerned, do I need a PhD? Do I need this? Because they think to get into any kind of role in the geosciences in general, whether it's environmental geoscience or working in data science, that they can't just have a bachelor's, that they need to have not just a master's even, that they need to go all out and spend, I guess, three years in Australia, but seven years in North America doing a PhD. 
Yeah, I'm not so sure I subscribe to to that, that you need to necessarily always have a PhD or no one will look at you. I, I certainly think that having an, some sort of applied experience speaks volumes. And the hardest part is getting that initial applied experience. So the advice I've given to something that gets asked of us quite frequently is find something that you're passionate about, find some data that you're passionate about, and really learn the tools on that data that you've got, you're close to and have some domain in. And then write some blogs, publish, publish your thoughts, be part of a community. And I think that sometimes people get a little held up on, on what you need to get from a university. There's so much great sort of learning online now that, that is essentially free. I can tell you that we have plenty of people on staff that, that don't have PhDs that are some of the best data scientists that we have. And they've learned the data science side of their thing, side of their kind of discipline, just through hard work and being invested and passionate about it. I do think sometimes having the grounding in, in mathematics or statistics, something like that can be very beneficial, but I think there's plenty of ways to become a great data scientist and the type of data science I'm really talking about is it what we call geodata scientists. There's many ways to get there is what I would say. And I think that when we're looking for a good data science, we're not just looking for the PhD. We're not just looking for the masters. We're really looking for a great scientist who's passionate about data and has some of those skill sets that we think we can grow. I may or may not be in the minority thinking that way, but in terms of who we hire, we certainly look for the science first. And so if I was giving advice on what do you have to do to be a good data science, make sure that you have a very strong domain in something because that's where you really add the value. There's plenty of people out there that call themselves data scientists who have skill sets which are outside of geoscience. And from our experience, they often lack the ability to make a big impact because they just don't know enough about what it is that they're doing and the nuances of the data they're dealing with. That's my hot take on that. That's a hot take. I haven't heard anybody say this before and about starting a blog to, in a way, making that your CV. And I think that's a great way to showcase your work, your thought process. If you look at my own blog, mine is more more lighthearted. I think I'm writing one currently about Sir William Herschel and how he in quotes, invented spectroscopy. So you have these kind of more lighthearted ones that are just meant to draw people to your business. But then you look at the Data Rock blog and that one, on the other hand, has some pretty solid statistics, mass in there, but then also brings you through code sometimes, which is really cool. I get really annoyed because Tom taught me in R and everything that you guys do now is in Python. So I don't find that helpful. Just throwing it out there. I think that's just such a great way to showcase who you are in terms of your thought process, how you could fit into a team, and really how you can impact geoscience. I really love that idea. Thanks for throwing that out there. No worries. Yeah. Look at you. <laughs> you're saying that it's late for you right now, Melbourne, and you're all, all cylinders firing. Like, that's just... I, I do my best work when I'm half asleep. So it's all you get stuff out of me. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Now, switching gears, for most of you out there, you likely don't know that Brent and I have been friends now for some time, and even his cat Dennis is a product of our friendship. This is all to say that from knowing him for a while now, Brenton loves drama and gossip. So Brenton, I'm sure that you have some great tea, and I would love for you to spill it. Sure. Yeah, I have to think hard about what to share in this segment. There's so many different kinds of gossip, I guess, you could share, but I thought... It's and always safer to share something about yourself. So the way we got into this is we started a company called Solve Geosolutions back in, in 2015. And we get asked sometimes uh, about how we got started with data science. And me and my colleagues who started the business, 
we tend to have a couple of different versions of that story and I'll give you the true one. At the time we were working in a mining company, obviously we were interested in this side of things, but the data sets we actually started working on and the things that we were passionate on early weren't geoscience data, they were actually sports statistics. And in particular, sports statistics that surrounded Australian rules football. And Sam's probably going to glaze over now as I start talking about Australian rules football. But it's but not think... about me, Brenton. You have to realize that it's and this <laughs> podcast is not about me. <laughs> so yeah, so essentially myself, Liam and, and Tom started playing with AFL data. And I think some of our first forays into data science and sports data was using self-organizing maps to visualize kind of statistical groupings and domains within players and things like that. But ultimately, it came to its crescendo with with Lean, uh, who was an absolute football tragic. He's now the CEO of, of Data Rock, predicting what's called the Brownlow Medal, which essentially is the medal for the best and fairest player in the league. And without going too deep into the dorkiness of this particular award, it's very difficult to predict statistically because it's chosen by umpires or referees. And there's been many PhDs on the topic, and it's very difficult to predict. So anyway, Lean did a great job with Tom and I assisting in creating a very good Brownlow model predictor and then predicting the outcomes of AFL games as part of that. We wrote some blog. Tom even won a sports stats competition with it. That was our first foray into learning a lot about data science, applying it, seeing the, the utility and the power of it. It then spalled out into other sports, NBA, and even a brief foray into horse racing, I think, was in the mix. But I think ultimately it was actually really good for us not to just be working in mining data immediately. We really got to play probably what was a simpler, cleaner data set, really made you craft the ideas and what you were trying to achieve. And you had very clear outcomes you were aiming at. And ultimately, we decided to focus it back into mining, and that's been a good thing. The overarching tease is we didn't, we started off in a slightly more sporting direction and then came back to mining. But sometimes we just say we always worked in mining because it, it's a <laughs> more coherent story. I guess it makes you sound a little bit fancier, but we all know that as Australians, there's only one thing that matters to you, which is sports. Yeah, 100%, 100%, yeah. And I will say in those early years of starting the consultancy, you started your own consultancy recently, you aren't necessarily super busy in that early time, which gives you a lot of time to fool around and to have little passion projects and sports probably was ours. I was started getting... a podcast, so. You started a podcast, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, yeah so, same. Anyway, that's the tea. That's the best I've got for you. I love it. And thank you for sharing. And I think that will also encourage all of our young listeners out there that don't maybe necessarily have a lot to do because they're looking for their big break to start their own blogs, maybe to start doing some on the side, doing a little bit of their own coding for sports themselves. So yeah, I can lots, recommend, lots of ideas. I can probably recommend a good blog as well. So we have a chap on staff, Jack Morn is one of our senior data scientists, and he has written, written some really great blogs, full of memes, really fun reads, really informative. So I highly recommend checking out some of Jack's stuff. Most of you, some of you might already be familiar with him. He's a bit of a famous in our circles, I guess I would call him for his oh. bloggery. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next podcast. Yeah. Famous for bloggery, maybe. Yeah. No, definitely yeah. not. Definitely not. This is already too much work, but I love it. Okay, cool. Thank you for that tea. I think it was great. All right, so now switching gears, I just want all of our listeners to be aware that Brenton now has asked numerous times to be on the show. He is such a super fan of the show. Brenton. Yeah, exactly. So you don't have to be a geochemist to be on the show, but you have to be geochemistry adjacent that is the minimum. And you also have to have enthusiasm, which Brenton has had in spades. 
That said, for a while, I mostly denied him because I didn't think he was necessarily serious. But at PDEC this year, when we started chatting of a topic of interest, namely image analysis and its integration with geochemistry data, I realized who was I to deny my T crew another talk on this really important subject. And furthermore, Brenton also wanted to take this discussion a step further and to not just talk about lithology, but to talk about stratigraphy. After multiple papers and books that my guests have asked me to read per episode over the past year, I asked Brenton to just look for something maybe a little bit lighter, like maybe one paper. But instead, he recommended a blog post that was written by his own team that was entitled Fusing Core Imagery and Chemistry to Model Stratigraphy. Brenton, can you take us through why you selected this blog post and maybe just give us a little summary of the article? Well, obviously, it's hugely self-serving that I chose a blog written by the company I work for. I'll just transparently say that. But I think there's lots of great publications looking at how you can combine chemistry and imagery. I'd say the majority of the literature is mainly focused on controlled source images that make classified mineral images. So I didn't really feel like there was a lot to add in, in that space, although we work in that quite a lot. So I thought that some of the work that Ryan did, just to, as context, Ryan Dutch is our head of applied science at Data Rock. Full transparency that Ryan's done some great work and I'm just writing his coattails here in, this, in the podcast. But I thought it was a really neat use case and it was on some public data from a South Australian survey where he used to work and really using bog standard ugly core photos that people submit to the government essentially. It was not the beautiful set of data that everybody writes publications on. It was really the gritty real world data, which I thought was quite good. And then also he went for the hard basket, trying to predict stratigraphy, not just something that was a bit more consistent in lithology. I thought that were just a couple of points that made it interesting as well. And so one of the first things you mentioned in describing this to us, you said the more standard types of image analysis that people do. Could you could you define what that is for our listeners in terms yeah. of this more standard image analysis versus perhaps what this article was talking about? Yeah, for sure. So I, I guess when I say standard, I probably mean some of those more expensive, higher value image data types. So for instance, CoreScan, a company that you used to work for, Tornado imagery, MLA, things like that. Essentially things where you get a quantified mineral image at the end. These are commonly the imagery types that people extract textures from and combine with other data sets. And it's because they're very powerful. I think that the other part is they're also easier to deal with because a lot of the standardization of the data and, and depth registration and all those things have already been handled. So I think that's well published, lots of great PhDs, lots of great studies done on that kind of data. And as I said, we certainly work in that really frequently as a company, but I sometimes like to talk about the grittier real world stuff and all the pain that comes with that. So that's what I'll be focusing on a bit when we dig a bit deeper. Gotcha. And I agree. There is a large difference. I've definitely seen those beautiful, consistent images versus some of the stuff that people would submit to us, which just have all the things that you never thought about before, because there's very few people that are in geoscience that are also photographers. You don't worry about angle decor axis or lighting or this, that. And I, yeah, I've seen a lot of very bad core photography. So now I'm in it with you. I understand what we're talking about. But gotcha. the difference is, Sam, everybody's got some and they cover the whole deposit and they've got years and years of it. And the tough thing about control source imagery is that it's high value, but it's also high cost which means that people are often a bit more sparing 
with it and lots decades of data that the core's gone like that's essentially just missing data for the a lot of these models so what what the humble core photograph lacks in ultimate mineralogy and consistency it makes up for it with coverage in a lot of cases if i could throw out something right now for our listeners though having both worked at a company that took these beautiful consistent core images photos as well and now also working with other providers that are also taking consistent core photography the cost of collecting it, you would be surprised, is not much more than what you pay for people to take terrible core photography, whether they're people that are working for you, because you're not taking into account that even though they're salaried per hour, what you are paying them is way beyond what you would be paying something that's going to take them in this consistent manner or sending them out to say a lab to take, that is actually very expensive. And then you have to talk about housing them in a file structure, which you'll never then be able to really access them easily, or then putting them into another third party system so that you could pull it up, that's expensive. I would challenge people to think the next time that they're doing a drill program to really explore the cost of taking really nice core photography in addition to other things, whether it's hyperspectral, whether it's XRF, versus just trying to quote save money by just having taken the photography themselves or through a lab because you'll find that if you don't break even you might actually sometimes even be saving money by doing something with a core scanning system i don't disagree with any of that and i think what we often show in our work is that the value of a good even a basic core photograph um, is actually very high you can do a lot with them now compared to what you could back in the day and i think Ultimately, what makes people care about these things is showing them the value, physically showing them what you can do. Otherwise, sometimes change is slow and hard to get. And for a while, it was hard to convince people to do four-acid geochemistry on everything on a regular basis. And now you see that's seen as this the normal thing to do. I think imagery, that sort of piece is a little behind, but eventually we'll get to the same place where people just do the right thing because you know the value. And if you aren't, you're essentially flushing value down the toilets. Anyway, I'm on the same anyway. soapbox. So we're on the same page. I think it's important though sometimes to stand on these soapboxes. What else? Why else am I spending so much time doing all this with the podcast and just bringing everybody on for all their different opinions, if not also throw my own soapbox in there sometimes? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah exactly. It's <laughs> always about me. <laughs> okay, so now let's just switch from talking on our soapboxes now just to talk just about this blog article, which I recommend people read. It's easily digestible and a quick read. Starting on that, for people that are interested in integrating image analysis into their geochemistry interpretations, is this something easily accessible to people that just have a computer and a data set, or is it a bit more complicated than just basic knowledge of coding, and particularly on a large scale? That's a good question, and I think that, like many things in data science, the part that makes this type of work really difficult isn't the model at the end. The model at the end is essentially a relatively small amount of the overall effort. It's actually cleaning up the data and getting that data, especially image data into this, what we call analytics ready and or structured format. So is it accessible to everybody? Well, I think most people who are proficient with something like Python could probably do elements of this fairly easily. But if you need to do it on a lot of data, you essentially need a method to be able to clean up and process a very large amount of variable core photography. That's the bit that probably locks people out, the scale and, and ultimately the cleaning up of data. You've dealt with lots of big geochemistry databases. The part that makes 
life difficult is cleaning all that data up and making sure that it's consistent with itself and everything else you've got, how accessible it is. As time goes on and as data gets better, it'll likely become more accessible. That's for certain. We talked about this a little bit before we started, but when you say about cleaning up data, I think that people, especially people listening to this podcast, are more aware of, say, in geochemistry, we have to clean up data that is multiple data sets because it's historic data. But what do you mean exactly then with some of cleaning core photography? What would be some of the points that you're looking for to make it a clean data set? That's a good question. To start off, metadata is the first thing that's really important. If I'm looking at an image of core, what do I know about that core? Like what drill holes are from? What's the starting depth of the core tray? What's the final depth of the core tray? Do we have any core loss inside that tray that needs to be accounted for? Can I read the core blocks? Those sorts of things. That's the first step, making sure that, like most things, metadata is key and it's correct. And then the bit that's complicated after that is you really need to crop out and get rid of all the stuff you don't care about in the image. For example, in a typical core photograph, about half the image is the core box. And the core box has very little utility when you're trying to analyze rock. So you essentially want to remove that. We crop the core box out, crop the rows out, so that we're left with essentially strips of rock. Those strips of rock have depths attached to them. We're pretty sure that those depths are right. We've accounted for any core loss. We've used meter marks, core blocks, and everything to essentially depth register that strip. And that's all the work you have to do just to get to the starting line, essentially, for analysis. That's what we mean when we're talking about cleanup and analytics-ready imagery. If you're using a controlled source scanner, those depth register strips are often a lot easier to come by. But essentially, a core photograph is what we call unstructured data. It's really an image that has a whole bunch of stuff you don't care about in an order which is messy. Okay, then. So something else that I'm interested in is in image processing and feature extraction. So what are these tools and why are they essential for image analysis? And what should we be looking for when talking to providers about doing image analysis work on our own data sets? Some things that we should look out for, what are some buzzwords we should note as red flags, things like that. What should we be asking? I'll start with the feature extraction. What we're talking about when we're talking about feature extraction from imagery is, is extract some numbers from that image. And we want those numbers to be meaningful. And the concept of feature extraction is quite simple, but the actual process of it is quite nuanced and, and quite complicated. Because if I asked you to create some numbers that describe this image, the question would be, describe it how? Do you want to describe it with its color? Do you want to describe it with its texture? Do you want some combination of those two things together? What's important with scale? There are many layers to it's asking someone, what do you mean by similar? There's lots of different ways something can be similar. So when we're doing feature extraction on an image or a core photograph, we're generally going to, be going to be using something like the method that's mentioned in Ryan's blog, which is essentially a form of transfer learning. We're going to use a neural network that has a good understanding of different imagery classes. And we're going to be using that approach to generate a set of features that describe that image. That's not the only way. There's lots of very simplistic ways you can do it. But the key thing that is really important is you must get those features to represent what you care to represent in that image. And the nice thing about a lot of the neural network-based techniques is that they make numbers that are meaningful. So they're describing the image the way that our eyes see them. Um, and that means that when we make a model, we get an output that is also very familiar to, to what our eyes are seeing. So yeah, that's the feature extraction part. The second part of your question about what's a red flag to look out for, I'll say something quite general about machine learning in the industry is that 
especially in the early days, there were providers going around offering the world on a platter using a black box that could make everything better, all of exploration, all predictions. It was just a really bad case of over-promising and under-delivering. The key is to find providers that are very transparent about what's possible and what's not, and also providers that are very transparent about what's actually possible using the data that you've got and the questions you've got. So I think that's probably what I would be always looking out for in this case or in any other similar type of project. And something that you said here was that with imagery, you can train a model to learn everything that our eyes see. And one thing that I noticed early on with a lot of providers a few years ago on the conference circuit where they were saying that they could map all your alterations, say. And you're looking at these guys and these guys, they just have photography. And so what our eyes can see is that we have some white material here, but our eyes cannot differentiate what that white material is in terms of, is it a perophyte? Is it an alienite? Is it a kilonite, et cetera? So something I think just, it, even though it's not really part necessarily of this article, if we could just take a little pivot towards for a second, could you comment on the benefits of combining core photography with say hyperspectral imaging to see more than just what the eye can see and what that would do for an image analysis? Your favorite topic. I say you've seen My favorite that, topic. That's it's just you walked <laughs> right into it. I just yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I can't <laughs> not say something. I feel I'm irresponsible. Myself, so I'm more than happy to give my two cents on that. So I think the big thing for me is that don't get me wrong, geochemistry is great, but the, the big deficiency of geochemistry is texture. And everybody knows it. And I think that the whether it's hyper spectral or some sort of other type of quantified mineral image or semi-quantified mineral image, that chemistry and things like hyperspectral are really yin and yang. They're the perfect partners for one another. And hyperspectral has its limitations too. You can't see all mineralogy, of course. But what it does do really well is texture. And chemistry is sometimes struggles with mineralogy and the arrangement of those minerals spatially. So I think that I think everybody's on the same page that together they're very powerful. I'm not sure I'm telling saying anything too controversial by saying that's the case. But um, I think that when you're looking at other types of imagery, whether we're talking about core photography or something else, that textural argument is still there. The, the, the texture is still important and still adds something. And in Ryan's article and in plenty of other publications, if you're trying to classify some rock, you generally get better performance when you add imagery in as another data set because it sees that rock differently to the chemistry in a really a different but significant way. So yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question about why hyperspectral is great. I think- Oh no, it, it was just more so <laughs> just that. I think first of all, you did answer it in one route, but it was just the other, just to make the point to that our eyes can only see so much and RGB photography at that to that has that same limitation and so yeah. if we were wanting to map alteration say it's more about layering your data sets so even though say a hyperspectral image is also an image just as rgb but just as in you're doing a any other type of data analysis and you're layering Geophysics on top of geochem on top of geology, et cetera. I think with image analysis, it's also important to be layering your data sets because if somebody's promising you that you can do everything with RGB, I think that's for me is also a big red flag because you'll never be able to do just alteration, say. It just Absolutely, isn't enough yeah. information. 
Yeah, for sure. So I think generally, the, so the, what we say to our clients and what we are really clear about is that if you can't see the phenomenon that we're looking for in the image with your eyes, we're not going to be able to train a model that can do it. That is 100% the transparency level required. For me, the answers that core photography provide versus the answers that hyperspectral provide when we're looking at core photography, we're generally trying to find something that's maybe it's really time consuming to log it. Maybe it's very difficult to get a quantitative log out of it. We're not going to be finding you new minerals that you can't see with the naked eye in that imagery. Whereas if you're doing hyperspectral, you're doing some other controlled source imaging, you're really wanting to learn something that you don't know, learn something about the rocks that isn't clear a lot. So I think they're different in that way. And I think it's, yeah, you have to be transparent about that for sure. Routinely, Geochemists will use a combination of elements to classify lithology, chemostratigraphy. And so something when I was reading this article that I was thinking about as something that I think you could add a lot of value to our listeners would be just to comment on what's the advantage of using, say, an algorithm like Random Forest to classify lithology and then also combining image data with geochemistry to classify lithology and stratigraphy. Yeah, so I guess in the first part, if we're just talking about chemistry alone, what's the benefit of using, say, random forest or some other kind of machine learning algorithm? I think one of the major benefits, I think, is that you can, a machine learning model, because it's essentially trained and, and really trained through experience, you can train it to see things that, that have more of a complex or variable answer. For example, you have a unit you're trying to predict, but the unit actually looks a little different depending on where it is. It may have some different alterations over the top of it. If you're using a machine learning algorithm, the great benefit is you can train it to understand that this thing that you're looking for can look several different ways. And that's really powerful. If you're trying to do it with a really rules-based type method, variation is very difficult to capture and model. So I think that's probably the one of the big things that's powerful about ML in that, in that sense. In terms of what's good about adding imagery to the piece, I think Ryan's article kind of touches on it, is that something like stratigraphy in this sense actually is very variable. Stratigraphy is really just they're looking for a particular part of the, of the unit or a particular group of units together. And within those, there's lots of distinct lithologies and they look completely different to one another. So if you have a unit that's really important to you, but it's got high variation, again, you can train it to understand that high variation Ryan could have done something easier and just trying to pick some lithologies that look exactly the same as each other, but that isn't really playing to the strengths of doing this. So I think that's the benefit. And you can see that in his results, he got a better result or a more confident result by actually adding both data sets together. That's really the crux of why it's useful. It's giving him some textual ability to discriminate things along with those elemental abilities to discriminate things from the chemistry. I agree. I found it, I had never really thought before doing it with cold, because as you say, Within a stratigraphy, you can have so many different variable units. You could map them separately, but I never really considered before mapping stratigraphic units. And I thought that was really cool how he took us through texturally and chemically how he did it. Yeah, very yeah, I neat stuff. And things that, you know, sort of sedimentary pile, you have lots of different textures that actually chemically are nearly identical. So in some respects, you won't get there with the chemistry with some of those things. And the other thing that I guess just to, to add why machine learning is good is that you can use different combinations of the variables for different classes. Some classes will be really well discriminated by the imagery and some won't be, and some will be really well discriminated by the chemistry and the imagery won't help at all. 
And so you've got that power where you're using what's important where it's important. You don't have to use the same rule everywhere. So again, that's another one of the key strengths of these ML algorithms. I think to talk to our listeners a little bit more, just to beat the dead horse here so that everybody can really follow with us. Right now, I am looking at this, I think I have like five or six limestones that I'm having a look at right now for one of the projects I'm doing. And let me tell you, chemically, there's three out of the six of them that are indistinguishable. But you look at what the geologists have logged on them and they're like, okay, well, we have crinoids here. We have this texture and one of the other ones. And I think to myself, wow, if I had the ability to, or the budget to go out and have some image analysis done with these, now you're talking about these additional three that I can't pull apart chemically would immediately be separated because now you're just looking for specific textural features that are so characteristic of these units that it just makes it easy in that sense. It's definitely something that everybody should be thinking of when they run into something like this, because there's no point in trying to continue on with my geochemical analysis. These three units are the same chemically. Yeah. When it comes down to it, it's easier for me just to go through the log and say, nope, you did a good job with this one because this one you're logging fossils in. But so. geochemistry solves all of life's problems. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and maybe that's maybe aren't looking hard enough, Sam, because geochemistry you know, is key. I, you're probably right, and I'm probably just not talented enough to figure out the chemical <laughs> composition of, of fossils, but uh, yeah. at least you know your place and in admitting that well, geochemistry is all powerful and we're not well, talking well, about black magic geophysics on this podcast. So. Well, I'm doing food and I will also say that it's also very become very clear to me over the years that hyperspectral is actually a geophysical technique and should be owned by the domain <laughs> of geophysics, not geochemistry. One thing that grinds my gears, I will say though, is that for a while people were calling so in, in hyperspectral, yes, you're identifying minerals, but there is an extent to which you're identifying mineral chemistry, whether it's alienites, whether it's white micas and some other minerals. And for a while, I was seeing this tagline of instead of mineral chemistry, they were calling it mineral geochemistry. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I don't like this. I feel very uncomfortable. But yeah, no, I agree with you. Like it is, spectroscopy is physics, true. It, we did learn, even though I didn't realize at the time, but when I was learning about the stuff in physics 102 or something like that's yeah, it's the physics of lights. That's what it is. My new series in my blog is all going to be about the history of hyperspectral and yeah, it's about physics. So Einstein was in there, but then it's like the boundary. I, we're getting off topic here, but it's the boundary <laughs> of it's just um, a Physics and chemistry, because you're talking about orbitals and excitation of electrons and everything. So it's just, it's very much on the border. But I think because you're talking about mineralogy, mineral chemistry, I think that's where it's like we suck it into our own domain. Because how could a geophysicist like yourself ever really truly understand something like that? I'd really just said that to wind you up and it worked perfectly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Moving on. With the workflow that Ryan did here, or Dutch 2003, with the integration of supervised and unsupervised analysis, I thought it was very interesting because I think a lot of people, especially 
maybe some of the older guard like to have those very separate and everybody's very afraid of unsupervised analysis because it just seems like something scary. Could you talk about what these terms are? Should we be fearing one workflow over another? And what's wrong with just using a PCA to classify lithology? And I'd be very overly dramatic on purpose about PCA here. So please. I wouldn't, I would definitely say that I wouldn't say anything negative about PCA. I think it's got its place and it's a great tool. I think overall, when we're talking about unsupervised versus supervised, the way we like to talk about data science and, and algorithms like these and tools like these is that they're just a toolkit that, that a data scientist has to help solve a problem. Sometimes an unsupervised approach is all you'll need and the best thing to do. And sometimes that's not the case. Generally speaking, if I have to generalize, I would say that unsupervised analysis at the start is really great because it's a key way we can explore data. And when we're doing unsupervised learning, what we're really trying to do is let the data tell us about its structure. So we don't need labels. The data will tell us what it needs to about groupings and relationships. And when we're doing that process, all we're doing is we're going to learn about what's important, about whether the data sets that we see are grouping data in sensible ways. For example, in Ryan's work, if we're trying to domain a bunch of stratigraphy, and I go and he's used a UMAP, but if we're using a PCA and we go and look at populations in that multivariate space, do those populations make any sense? When I go and look at them, are they stratigraphy or are they telling me something that's completely nonsensical? That's super important and very powerful workflow because it's gonna tell us whether the data we ch chose is actually relevant for the thing that we're trying to get it to discriminate. The algorithm, algorithmic choice is going to either give us domains that make sense or not. Are we going to cluster it? Whatever we're going to do with it, look for outliers. So unsupervised learning is super important. I think the thing that I personally believe though is unsupervised learning is rarely the end. Unsupervised learning is usually the start of an analysis. And most of the time we need to model data to some, predict something, classify something that's important, which means that we usually end up with a supervised model at the end. And probably just to define supervised learning quickly, in my ge geologist way. So this is a thing, but essentially we're, we're gonna be using labeled data and we're gonna be training a model to, to basically learn something about that labeled data and be able to predict something, whether it's a regression or some sort of classification. The key thing is we're forcing that model to, or that algorithm to create a model that's of interest to us. Whereas in unsupervised learning, we're letting the data tell us about itself. What Ryan's done essentially is really what we do at DataRock, which is, start off exploring and understanding the data. And then we have questions we have to answer, which means we usually have to apply a model to the data and that's supervised. And I really like that answer. And I think you did a really good job of, of going through the two and separating them, but also just commenting on how they both come together and not to really be fearful of either that they're. <laughs> There's no, you should be afraid of algorithms that they, they, they are nothing to be feared. I think the only danger with some algorithms, if you use them and don't understand them, then mm. essentially you've got a gun that you haven't been trained to use and you can see things that aren't really there. You can find patterns that don't exist and be led down the garden path a bit. I will say that these algorithms do tend to come in and out of vogue. I know I remember self-organizing maps were all the rage for a while back there and now they've fallen out of favor. And then TSNE was really hot and then that was out of favor as well. And now we're into the various types of maps so it's like anything, there's they, things come in and out of, of being cool. I think to finalize everything, what do you think the role of data science in geochemistry is going forward? And likewise, the role of geochemists in data science companies? Yeah, the second part is probably something I could probably comment on better. And it's probably 
similar to what I mentioned previously, which was we really struggled to find geochemically inclined data scientists probably for three or four years. And now, luckily, we've managed to find some really great geochemical consultants who are great data scientists, but we really struggled to find anything other than geophysicists to, to begin with. And then we found some mining engineers and you work your way through those very analytical disciplines and you tend to find more data scientists. But geochemists for us were the hardest, right up there with metallurgists and things like that. But that said, I think they're super important. I really think that geochemistry is such a workhorse inside mining companies. The number of really high value models that are either completely or predominantly driven by geochemistry is very high. And having people that understand that data and the domain is super important to make sure that your models make sense, they're valid, they're valid and QAQC'd and, and can work in production. If you don't have that domain behind those models, then you're in risky territory. And not to just talk disparagingly about geophysicists because they can do everything and essentially perfect in every way. But I, I think that out of all the data sets that we work with, geochemistry would be the most common, especially when you're in that near mine environment. So are they important? Absolutely. The data sets that they are expert in are one of the most important. I think that's probably pretty clear. What's the role in data science with geochemistry going forward? Well, you can look at something like the IGAS, something that's a, a really common workhorse tool for most geochemists in industry. And you can see that tool is now adding more and more of these kind of more high-end data science tools to it. So I think that suggests that most geochemists are starting to delve into data science to really push the data more and more. So yeah, I think that like any of the other disciplines, data science is going to be more important as time goes on. And I think the reason I believe that is because geochemistry data is getting more complicated. It's getting better. There are more elements, lower detections. You're seeing things in them that you probably couldn't have dreamt to see in them in past time. And I think the other part that we work a lot in is mineralogy. And so when you're dealing with really great quantified mineralogy and you've got geochemistry, you start to need some other tools to see the signal in the noise and start to see those really valuable relationships that aren't obvious in bivariate plots and PCA and things like that. Suffice to say, as much as it pains me, geochemists are really important people. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. Although I'm on a podcast, you said that but... you wouldn't say that when we were talking about what you should say for the tea, and here it is. So you were making fun of Tom Carmichael, and now the guys at Data Rock can haze you because here you go. Yeah, no secret chemistry, and I wish I was better at it. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm gonna have to have a think about everything said here today. Catch up with you later on. And finally get a tour through the Data Rock platform because it's just been so nebulous for so long and now I just need to see it. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening to Geochemist Tea and a big thanks to Brenton for stopping by the show, dishing some tea and taking us on this little journey here. I want to thank our sponsor, LKI Consulting and to It's Water and Coma Media for our music. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you all next month. And as always, if you have any recommendations for people for me to chase up and to get on the show, send me a note through our website at geochemistry.com. <laughs>